something a bit different on today's podcast as we talk to Dr. James Somaru, a former anaesthetics trainee who has transitioned into the health tech space and also runs the extremely popular health tech podcast. James shares his journey from a doctor on the ward, frustrated with the way that processes were being implemented, to running his own health tech company and an extremely successful podcast. And this is a really useful episode for anyone who's ever wondered how you go about combining multiple careers in health tech and being a doctor at the same time. James gives us some really personal insights about why he eventually ended up deciding to not practice as a doctor anymore and go into health tech full time. We also talk about a load of other things from NHS printers and faulty IT to James's biggest financial mistake and he shares some really important information about that. We also talk a bit about Clubhouse, puppies, LinkedIn and a whole host of other things in between. So something a bit different but I hope that you find it useful. Let's get into today's episode. Welcome to the Medics Money Podcast. My name is Dr. Tommy Perkins and I'm a GP. And my name is Dr. Ed Cantelo, a GP, but also a chartered accountant and a chartered tax advisor. And yes, you did hear that right. Not only is Ed a doctor, he's also a chartered accountant and a tax advisor. Medics Money empowers doctors and other professionals like you to make better financial decisions. On today's podcast, I'm delighted to welcome a fellow doctor, a podcaster, and a health tech guru, Dr. James Somaru. James, how are you doing this morning? Very well. Don't know how I feel about being called a guru of anything. Uh, I don't feel qualified for that, but uh, thank you for having me. Glad to be here. You're also a bit sleep deprived because you've got a brand new puppy, which I've just found out, like babies, also don't sleep. Yeah, unfortunately, they do not, uh, for the first couple of nights anyway. Uh, night two last night and slept, to be fair, better. But still, yeah, bags under my eyes, unfortunately, dude. But I am here bright and early for this podcast. I wasn't going to miss it. Yeah, good. Thanks for showing up. Definitely appreciate that. So for those of us that haven't um, listened to your excellent podcast or know about you, do you want to just give our um, listeners an intro about how you started as a doctor and ended up a health tech guru or semi-guru, <laughs> semi <laughs> sure. shall we say? Sure. Um, cool. So I was an anesthetics and intensive care doctor by background. So I practiced clinically for five years. My thing, I suppose, as a doctor was quality improvement projects. I just really enjoyed them. I found it easier, better, more cathartic in a way to fix systems and things rather than patients at one point it got to. Um, and it was just that thing of like, if I fix this printer, then it means that everyone can print on time, which means that ward rounds start on time, which means that patients get fed, which means surgery doesn't get cancelled. Like, Perhaps that's a bit grandiose, but it's definitely along those lines, right? And that's the way that I saw hospitals at the time. So I got really involved in quality improvement, started doing little projects, started doing weird things at the time, which was like shadowing the chief exec, shadowing people in the finance department just to see how money moved because people kept using that as an excuse. So I thought, well, let me go and learn it and see. And that then I ended up partnering with someone called Linda, who was in the finance department, and we wrote a, a little business case for the neonates unit to lease a new blood culture analyzer, because long story short, uh, we did this ward round on special care where if you had suspected sepsis as a neonate, you could go home if you had 48 hours negative on, uh, blood cultures. And nobody went home at 48 hours. So I just looked into it and was like, what on earth? Anyway, long story short, uh, wrote, wrote this business case with Linda for them to get a new blood culture analyzer. Didn't end up happening, but 
work my way up and ended up presenting it to the CEO and all this stuff. And it, it did make waves, although the thing didn't actually happen, but it showed me that you can, you can make that change. And subsequently things did happen along those lines that were similar. And so people started going home on time. It was like, wow, this is so cool. And like, I kind of got bitten by the bug then for sort of change and improvement and business cases, which led me onto all the different bits. So I went to policy for a couple of years. I went to Health Education England, did some stuff at NHS England for Tony Young, uh, stuff like that. Um, and then I ran accelerators. So I went to something called the Digital Health London Accelerator, which is a, a startup accelerator, you know, run by the NHS, run by the AHSNs in London. And we were helping 30 startups a year get into the NHS. It was kind of early days for tech and entrepreneurship and healthcare. And it was all difficult conversations around like e-privatizing health. It was, it was all very tough at the time um, to walk that knife edge, but uh, it was super interesting. Ran that program. We did some cool stuff. I started my own accelerator after that called HS, which became HS Ventures. Um, we were an accelerator. We also invested in startups and partnered with charities and did some other bits and bobs like that. And now I find myself with a podcast. I write for Forbes on health tech as a contributor. And because of that comm stuff, I've started a new company called Somex, which is an innovation and communications agency specifically for health tech startups. So uh, that's the long and short of it. Awesome. And um, what I'm getting from that is you essentially started quite local and small and followed your passions. And that kind of led you to where you are now. Um, because uh, often people ask me, um, doctors, you know, I want to get into health tech. How do I start? I think because they mistake medics money for some kind of technological marvel, but actually it's literally just me and Ed dispensing the knowledge <laughs> that we have to our colleagues. So if I am a doctor right now and I've got an idea like you had, um, you know, where do I even start? yeah it's sort of like trying to find the corner of a circle like you just keep going round and round and round like you, you, it's tough to know where to start what i would say is if you're passionate about trying to solve a problem which a lot of healthcare professionals are clinicians left right and center spot problems in healthcare that they want to fix and they see technology way as a way of doing that it is a bit cliche, but to just get started somewhere, anywhere, and, and just ask someone a question, why is this like this? And you'll you'll get some new information there that you didn't know before. That person might just say, well, it's always been this way. And so ask why. Why has it always been this way? Who's in charge of changing it? And then they'll, oh, no, well, you can't do that. It's too difficult. Why is it too difficult? Who actually makes this decision? And you end up just on a trail of figuring out more and more and more about the problem you end up understanding this problem so extremely well everyone for whom that problem touches everyone for whom would benefit if there was a solution and so with all that information you can then think about right now how do i solve it what might solve it we could solve it at this point we could solve it at that point it might be just changing a pathway. It might be speaking to a tech company to see if this technology could come in and do it. It might be a mixture of the two. You know, in my early days, I just put together focus groups, I guess you'd call it, which was just essentially a few people that I knew in the hospital to just sort of sit around a table and go, okay, you're from IT, you're a junior, you're a consultant, you're a specialist nurse. Like, how do we reckon we solve this? Like what, you know, if money were no object, what would the solution look like? And then sort of work back from there. And I think that 
especially being collaborative, right? Like you, you can, and this is this is a big problem that I saw actually when I started doing quality improvement projects. You know, many of my colleagues just thought I'm a doctor, I know the most in the hospital, therefore I can solve it. And it's it's so incorrect because you you, you there is so much you don't know as what if whatever job you're in, right? By but by getting a load of people around the table, you'll get new ideas. You'll get different lenses of seeing things through. It's why I suppose you know people that have done computer science and data science that now do medicine can go on a ward round and actually just look at exactly what the solutions need to be, um, because they they don't just see it through the lens of medicine. They see it through those other lenses. So just get started. Ask some questions. Be inquisitive. Um, really get to the root of the problem think about if money went no object what would the solution be get a load of people around the table and work back from there and try and solve it that would be my advice awesome i think there's something that everybody can take from that and just just get started and um on your podcast which we mentioned health tech podcast you basically interview the latest brightest uh, innovators in health tech and i uh, definitely recommend having a listen to that if you're into it i get so much useful information from it but you know, for those that haven't listened to it, what what's hot in health tech right now, and what's going to impact you know in the next five years, in your view? Because you get a unique sort of viewpoint by interviewing all these amazing people on your podcast. Uh, so, dispel, suspense us that info. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I get I get asked a lot about what trends I see, and, and as you say, what's hot right now. It's a tough one because at the moment so much is hot it's almost like innovation itself and the appetite for it is hot right now it's as if people are open to solutions technology's crept into our everyday lives a heck of a lot more and it seems that now people are then you know clinicians and other people that work in hospitals are just normal people too they use technology in their everyday lives and it seems that when they get to work now there's more of a frustration around the way things are and there's uh there's more force against the uh, old way of doing things and more of a force for change it seems that you know not to make this about too much about COVID 19 but by looking at something like a pandemic that comes in and, and creates a real necessity for change that is really fueling this kind of innovation wave i would say especially the just the appetite for it the willingness for people to have those conversations so i would say there are certain things that are going to have to change pretty quickly if we're going to clear what is a, a currently a, over 4.4 million people backlog of people waiting for treatment so I think one of the things that's going to change is the way that we communicate with clinicians. I think we have a very synchronous model, which is you have outpatient appointments every six months and you might you might need to be there, you might not need to be there. But I think the way that we look after ourselves and the way that clinicians look after patients in the community is going to have to move asynchronous, which means... Uh, uh, you know, patient-initiated follow-up. So there's remote monitoring, there's patients reporting their own symptoms back they're only called in when they need to be now you can add whatever tech you like on top of that wearables and and ai and machine you, you can add all that on top fine but ultimately the service that i think is going to change is the way that patients in the community have their chronic diseases managed by healthcare and i think all the technology that can support that is uh is going to be important not least ai right might as well mention it it is going to be extremely important you and i both know i mean how many alarms do you actually really listen to in a hospital like if an alarm goes off your your default thought is 
oh, turn it off. It's a mistake. Like you, you don't think like, ah, something bad's happening. You just think a lead's fallen off. And that's, you know, a huge problem for, you know, petty wearables out in the community. Like how clean is this data? How much, can we, but the AI is going to be really important figuring that bit out. That is going to be an absolutely crucial step, I think. And the, the best of those systems and services are going to make use of really good, powerful AI that's going to sort the wheat from the chaff um, in that scenario. But um, yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I actually wrote down AI question mark here because we hear a lot about AI that's going to take over doctors' jobs and we don't need doctors anymore. But I think the use case that you've just talked about there, uh, using a great example like alarm fatigue, as you say, you hear an alarm in hospital and for non-doctors listening, this is going to sound terrible, but you're, you're right. Your default is to assume that it's either wrong or uh, you know not, not, not accurate. And uh, in the vast majority of cases, uh, that's true. Um, and definitely what you're saying about, um, you know, the crisis driving innovation, you know, start of the pandemic in my GP practice, we'd never done an online consultation, never done a video, never done a video consultation and we could text our patients, but the software was so clunky that we never did it. Um, and now, you know, in the pandemic, I'm doing video consultations. We've got full online consultation access 24 hours a day. Wow. And uh, if, if I see a patient's test result and it's abnormal, I just drop them a text and say, you know, come in. And then obviously, obviously it's a fail safe on that. And they love it because they're like, wow, you're just communicating with me so much better. So uh, I like what you said. They're sort of problem focused and the tech is the solution um, to that problem. But here's something that I've been dying to ask you for ages, right? And you've already touched on it. Because I listen to your podcast and I hear all these amazing things. And I think, yeah, that is a great idea. That would be really useful as me, for me as a GP in my day-to-day practice. And then I go on to the ward at hospital and I go on, find the computer. I, f- I start it up. It's running an update. 20 minutes later, I'm ready to log in. Say, yeah. Yeah. I'm oh, like, I'm 20 minutes say. later, we're updated and I'm logging in. I've got four different logins and then it's, you know, which one is which. And then I open it up. I print out a list with patients' confidential information on. Uh, I print it. The printer's broken, as you said. So I go next door ward and print it out there. And then I use that list uh, to run the entire ward with, you know, patient safety, critical information on, and every doctor listening to this will relate to this. So I listen to your podcast and it sounds amazing. And then I'm in the reality of the NHS's current IT infrastructure, which is not universally terrible, but I think a lot of people relate to what I said. How do you sort of square that circle? Really good question. It's up to the entrepreneurs, quite frankly. And they the most of the ones that, that are on the podcast, right? They, they've got normally a real key motivator in their past that has really given them the energy to run through all of these brick walls every day. And it is frankly up to them to square that circle, as you say, and find a way to actually get it done. One thing that I suppose I've learned in speaking to so many of these entrepreneurs that are trying to do this is that the technology already exists. The ideas are 10 a penny, right? There are, there are so many ideas. There's so much technology that's already here that could well be used in hospitals. The key is the adoption of it. And just like you've said, there are practical on-the-ground issues that in, in, in something like infrastructure, like you mentioned in IT, that need to change to enable so much innovation. Now, what ends up happening is that some areas do put that infrastructure in and they are the ones that can support that innovation. And that's where you get Vanguard sites and they get pilots and they get good data and they then get the confidence to roll it into a contract. And then they 
end up with a pathology department that uses AI to look at cancer biopsies, right? I mean, that's that that is a real example. So it is that. And it and whilst it's partly up to the entrepreneurs to sort of create that once they find it in some organizations, they are going to double down there. So part of that responsibility then does fall onto the organizations themselves to make them kind of digitally ready uh, to, to take this stuff on, but also appetite, right? It comes down to how much in your example, does that the hospital really want to change their infrastructure? What challenges do they have financially that allow for that? You know, you can trace all of this way back to like, what are the actual problems that we need to solve here to enable this thing, which is super AI and techie and great down the line, but let's have a serious, genuine conversation about what needs to be done right now to send us there in five years. And I think that that's what, you know, I was starting to get involved in um, when I was doing those quality improvement projects and getting involved in those conversations and realizing that, yeah, Christ, if I start pulling this thread, it goes pretty far back before we can start using AI on the wards. Yeah, yeah. And one solution I've seen some companies use is like often my phone is by far the fastest and most reliable piece of IT equipment that I have at work. And um, AccuRx basically implemented video calling for us in the pandemic. And the reason it worked so well is because it didn't use my NHS computer, it used my uh, phone. And even though I've got an out of date old iPhone, it was super smooth and super nice. And so I guess that's a workaround, but it's not fixing the uh, ultimate problem. I should also say after about... 10 months it did provide me a webcam that now actually works and so i don't use my iphone anymore it integrates nicely with our current software we're using so they got there in the end and this is an example of a crisis driving innovation there you go yeah awesome okay um another thing that i've been and people ask me all the time uh, i don't know why i think they think i'm about to leave medicine i'm not but <clears throat> you said that you worked as a doctor for five years and at mm. some point you decided to stop being a doctor um, for some people, that's a huge decision. I mean, mm. would you mind sharing about why you did that and what you learned from not being a doctor anymore? I mean, you still are a doctor, but you're not practicing, eh? Well, my license, I've rescinded my license. So I don't know if technically that's still, anyway, I still use the title. I still feel like it because, uh, you know, I, it was a huge, it, it was a huge part of my life and, you know, it, it's part of my identity and I can, I can still imagine what it's like giving an anesthetic and doing a medical on call and being the F1 in surgery. Like these are memories that I use when I, you know, speak to our clients about how to communicate with those people to get them on board with your tech solution. Right. So I, I, I do, I do have a sense of pride for it certainly, but in terms of, of what happened. So when I was doing the quality improvement stuff, it started to ramp up. And I started spending more time do, doing that stuff, but also thinking about that stuff. And it got to the point where you almost didn't want me as your doctor at four in the morning because I was more interested in thinking about other things. I was thinking about, you know, in, in my view at the time, it was like bigger picture of like, well, if I, I can do this and then it'll cause way more impact down the line. And that's kind of how I started to think about it. Um but I mean, practically speaking, what happened was I took fellowships. So I got onto the National Medical Directors Clinical Fellowship Scheme, uh, which was the Bruce Keogh one at the time. It's still run by the FMLM, uh, the Faculty of Medical Leadership and Management, uh, all very long acronyms. But what that allowed me to do was almost test out 
what is it going to be like doing a different job? How do you send an email? How do you operate in an office? Like, what does the back end of healthcare actually do? Do I want to do something here? And I, I had that curiosity and I, ha- I just, I had to figure it out. But a fellowship allowed me to put a step out and keep a you know, foot in as well. And that was crucial because I could experience those things, but step back into medicine if I wanted straight away. And that was really important to me because it, it always felt to me reckless to just go, ah, oh, I'm too cool to be a doctor. I'm off. See you later. And it's just like, no, that, that, that isn't, that isn't me. It isn't sensible for me. It's not what I want to do. I haven't got the confidence in myself that I can make it in the outside real world with real people that have real experience and real degrees and all this sort of stuff. So I wanted that security and that's where the fellowship helped. And so I went to HEE, then went to NHS England for a bit. And I think that taught me a skill, which was, well, then I went to the accelerators. So digital art at London, but I still paid by guys in St. Thomas's. So Again, even when I went to my first accelerator, I was still paid by the NHS. NHS pension was stacking up still, you know, all this sort of stuff. And my dad still thought I was working at Guy's and Thomas's Hospital. So, you know, but I think then after that, I'd skilled up in something which was running an accelerator. And I had a good idea and a really good feeling of what an, the next accelerator in the health tech space should be. So I always had that next branch before I let go of the, of the previous one. And that was, just so important to me of, of how to actually do this for me properly now there are people for whom they will take the plunge so to speak they will just do it and for them it might not be reckless because they've just got that's they're a born entrepreneur and they just want to do something or they've just got that sense of like i will make this happen no matter what or they might be financially secure that they can do that so all of these different things can play in, right? But that's how it practically worked for me. I'd say I struggled with identity at the start. That was the main thing. You know, I'd always hung my hat on being a doctor professionally, personally, as you know, it's a vocation, right? It creeps into everything. It becomes who you are. And so in between being the doctor and I suppose the health tech guy or the podcast guy, whatever I am now, um, there was this sort of a void in between this abyss in between where I was just sort of wondering like is this the right decision like I don't really know what I'm about like I'm sort of the the innovation guy or the quality improvement guy or the like I'm the accelerator guy like I don't know but um not that I needed that for ego but more that I needed that just to sort of feel secure that I was onto something for the long term and I just ended up getting comfortable with being uncomfortable and I just ended up being like oh well I'm, I'm waking up and I'm, I'm doing something better than I was last year. I feel better about what I'm doing now than what I did last year. And that kind of yearly audit of your life, which medicine kind of teaches you with the way that it's structured. It just made me think that like, okay, I'm, I'm, I prefer this to what I was doing last year. And then the next year I prefer this to what I'm doing last year. So I'm on a decent path and then have, uh, well, that continues to be honest. And like I say quite a lot, it seems that happiness and comfort are moving targets no matter how, uh, how high you get or how uh, in, like broad you get or whatever you end up in thinking that was going to be the thing that made you comfortable and happy. There's <laughs> always another thing. Yeah, definitely. Um, but I love that what you just said there is just make each year happier than the last because I think yeah. in medicine, there's a lot of what I call jam tomorrow, which is go to med school and you'll be a doctor. It'll be amazing. Do F1, it'll be hard. But after that, you're CT1, it'll be amazing. And I, I mean, I still love doing medicine. and I don't anticipate changing that. But 
if you don't love it, you know, I think it's really important to be on, try to be honest with yourself like you have and, and take those steps. And, and the other thing that you mentioned was confidence. So I always chuckle when you hear that because basically me and Ed sat on the idea of Medics Money for about six years because we had no confidence. Nice. We had no business experience. We just thought, you know, hope, we actually hoped somebody else would do it so that we didn't have to because we, we're both really shy. We don't yeah. like public speaking, like things like this, broadcasting to thousands of people. That is not me and Ed. Yeah. Uh, we're not really on social media. We don't do that kind of thing. But the confidence thing that you can do it, you know, doctor, I found doc medicine has brought me loads of transferable skills, which I didn't yes. really know that I had. So I think if you are listening and you are, you've got an idea, you know, as, as long as it's not to start a health tech podcast or uh, financial or financial <laughs> no, education. Free. I'll help for, you if you want to do well, that, honestly. <laughs> I mean, you know, financial education for doctors, health tech podcast, that niche has been filled, but find another, <laughs> find another niche and just go for it. Like, um, and you mentioned again for the second time, Am I the Tony Young thing? Is that is that worth flagging up? Because like, you mentioned that. Yeah, I'm, well, I met him. I met him um, <laughs> quite quite. Yeah, just just met him and had a chat, and he just said, "Do you want to come and do a bit of work?" And I was at Digital Art London at the time, running that accelerator, and just ended up doing a day a week. We were looking at ways to incentivize clinicians to do innovation. We were looking at a few of the different bits and bobs. So. Yeah, it was just a really good experience just to be at the at that kind of, um, I suppose, opera on NHS England and just seeing how those meetings ran. I was in meetings with like people like Noel Gordon and people like that. And it was just interesting to me that I could be a fly on the wall. And it was one of those things where, you know, they weren't paying me at the time to be there one day a week, but you know, the way that I saw it was just that that was it, that was experience. Um, and that was something you can't pass up. Like, that's great and so yeah it was it was just another view and I think that's one thing I would say now that has really benefited me that I've seen healthcare from loads of different vantage points someone actually asked me the other day uh, a medical student asked me the other day like what advice would I have for someone that wants to get involved in health tech and, and understand more about the way that money moves in the hospital and I'd say it's just sort of an extension of what I did right back when I was a doctor of, of, yeah, okay, I shadowed a couple of people in the hospital and then decided I knew it all, which was utter nonsense. But what I would do now is like, go to a CCG for a week, go to NHS England for a week, go to HE for a week, go to NICE for a week, go to like, try and get as much of that stuff under your belt as possible so that you can just fully understand how all of these things play together. Because healthcare is so complex that your value, if you're trying to innovate within it, is to understand the levers you can pull with everybody because everyone's got a different budget for something else. And if one person pays for it, another person might save. But the more that you can understand all of those tensions, the more that you can plot a way through and actually figure out how to innovate. And so, yeah, I would turbocharge just getting experience in as many of those organizations as you can or speaking to people from those organizations as much as you can. Um, but I just wanted to touch on one point that you mentioned actually about um that you that you still love it and that was the, that was the other thing for me is that i started to feel really uncomfortable that i wasn't enjoying medicine and not loving seeing patients as much as my colleagues were and i think i saw that in everybody else or most a lot of other people anyway i saw that particularly in a few but largely in many that they they really enjoyed learning the science learning for the exams and they 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 that fed them with energy whereas always it took energy from me and i think as much well you know revising for exams takes energy from everyone i'm not going to kid kid you there but 
do you know what I mean? It was it was more of an uphill battle for me to learn that stuff and to to do that kind of day job. And I just thought, you know, if if I if I was to leave today, I'd be replaced by someone that probably loved it more than me. They'd probably get this training job, and that for me just felt like yeah i don't think it's right and then lo and behold i failed the anesthetic exam so let's also not be under any illusions there i didn't leave in this like blaze of glory where i was like i'm off see you later guys it was more this kind of like mm, if i failed the exams and i don't want to revise for them mm, if i'm doing this other stuff so it was quite considered and uh, i took the signs that yeah perhaps i wouldn't have uh, <laughs> yeah even made yeah. it to consultancy to be honest <laughs> i mean um I do love my job, uh, but you mentioned anaesthetics. So I actually, I'm a GP now, but I, I started CT1 uh, and did half of CT2 anaesthetics. Oh, cool. Um, and I just, I thought I'd love it, but I didn't, I don't know why. And I did not love it. And uh, when I quit it, everyone was like, you, you've quit your training number, like halfway through CT2. Are you, you in, are you insane? And um, no, I wasn't. And I'm so glad that I did um, because it's such a big call. Like I think you said, just, you know, if you're not enjoying tomorrow, looking forward to tomorrow better than today, something's not right. And, uh, you know, quitting for medics, you probably, I've, I'd never quit. It's funny. We call it quit it. We call it quitting. Yeah, Why yeah. do we call it quitting? It's not uh, quitting. You haven't quit anything. You've just changed your, your path. Honestly, like, people were like sitting me down, like well-intentioned people saying, look, you're all right at this. Like, are you sure you're quitting? Like, just get to the end of CT2, see how you like it. Then I'm like, Honestly, I like it so little. I'm really sorry, but I'm out. Like I quit after half you, man. CT2. Uh, we need to normalize this. Yeah. Honestly, we need to normalize the the ability for people to realize they don't enjoy it as much as they thought, and they want to do something else, and that that is okay. It's more than okay. It's ideal because you'll be on a better path. It's okay to want to be an absolutely love to be a GP or a dermatologist or a cardiac surgeon or any of these different things. It's okay to just do a medical degree and go, I've got a medical degree. I'm now going to do something else. It's okay to do all of those things, but definitely you just need, if, if you, if, if you're not loving it, it's, it's going to be finite. Um, in my view anyway, and I, I yeah, think yeah. there are, there are ways to adjust your course to, um, Definitely. Just try and make yourself happier. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And I think that's something that I really tried to impart on people that ask me, you know, like, yeah, I do say, yeah, I quit anesthetics. And they're like, oh my goodness, why did you do that? Like, I would tell it's them why. Ball and like, yeah. in, the, in the medical world. <laughs> definitely. Like, uh, you know, back then it was highly competitive training program. I ticked all the boxes, yeah. I had all the papers, I'd been to the right yeah. conferences, I'd done everything, you know. Um, and then I quit after you know less than 18 months and um yeah that was you know felt it didn't feel big move to me but people mm. that i know and respected like were like oh have you lost your mind like and you're, <laughs> going, you're going to be a gp uh, and now honestly it's a cliche to say that i love my job and i do love my job now the problem for the nhs is that i only love doing gp part-time yeah. uh, which is roughly translates to about 60 hours a week right that's mm. part-time <laughs> nhs part-time but you know, I think that's something, with, a topic for another day. But yeah, full-time GP, I do not love, for the record. But uh, part-time GP, part-time, something like this, um, I love it, you know? And if I don't, um, I'll probably end up quitting it again. Uh, <laughs> and it's not quitting, but good for you, mate. Congratulations, yeah, yeah. Just to set up a life that you do enjoy. And even Jeff Bezos said, I, I was listening to something that he was doing the other day, and uh, he, he said, look, we should probably be aiming to enjoy half our time in our job because there's always overhead, right? Definitely. Let's just get that Definitely. out there. There's always overhead. No, do what you love. Okay, fine. But look, 
as I say, there's always overhead. So let's just aim to enjoy half of it. And you know what? I think even something like that takes the pressure off that like all these people that say, oh, I love every minute. Not in my view, but... um, Yeah, the yeah. bit that I love is seeing patients. The bit I don't love is yeah. the paperwork. But you just yeah. the AI <laughs> is going to sort Perfect out example. the paperwork. You're going to sort out the AI and sort out the paperwork for me. So then I'll be in dreamland. But no, there I are a couple of companies actually that are doing this automatic transcription of uh, of consultations. Um, there's one in the US that I spoke to you the other day. Uh, sits in the background of of A and E consultations and can actually. Does it run on Windows 95 that I'm running on my uh, not, PC? Not sure, dude. Not sure. <laughs> I don't think so. Although <laughs> solid operating come. system, that. <laughs> classic operating system let's not go down that rabbit hole um <laughs> okay cool no i think it's a serious point like um like i said when i that was the first time i'd ever quit anything you know um you didn't quit let's stop saying yeah that. yeah okay um but uh changed the course of my life and um i think as medic medics we're so we're a certain sort of personality you know perfectionists and we've probably never changed the course of our life okay quit anything like that before um but yep. i think it was honestly one of the best moves and anyone who is an anesthetist fair play because it is a very very hard job uh, which i did not enjoy at all uh, so <laughs> just don't want to alienate our listeners okay um now when you agreed to come on our podcast uh, we're about you know improving doctors financial health uh and you said you you'd come on as long as you didn't ask about your financial mistakes so obviously <laughs> i'm going to ask you uh, because it's important to, yeah, everyone I to learn. i've I made loads of financial mistakes everyone has but um give us some that you've made and how you learned from them well, I will just say the, the the big the big one to be honest, which is that in the early part of my career, I spent what I earned. Simply that, I didn't. I was never informed. I was never told. And you know, to put the blame on me, I never educated myself on the notion that I have twenty thousand pounds a year that I can put into something called an ISA, that a stocks and shares ISA, which will go up arguably, you know, 10, 15% a year or eight, if you want to be conservative, whatever. Um, and that that will make me money above inflation. And that it, if I start doing that at the age of like 18, then it can turn into literally millions without putting too much in every month. I just did. Oh, and by the way, all of that is tax free because it's under the 20k per year. I just had absolutely no idea that this was a concept. I had no idea of the concept that having money can sit somewhere and make you money. It's the opposite of interest on debt. It's compound interest on the gains of it in an ISA. Like I just had, I just had no idea. So I, in the early parts of my career, I can't stress this enough. Just didn't know this existed, and so I just thought what you earned, you could spend, and that was how you lived and that's partly probably because as a medic you kind of in your head have job for life and you know if you push it further than that you have job for life and a decent pension so you're paid even after you retire so you've always got this steady monthly income forever now and so that's just how i had it in my mind and had it in my mind that we're paid relatively well so like it'll go up this amount and then then i can afford this and so it never it just never struck me to save much money other than to save for the fluctuations of where I wanted to go boozing that weekend. <laughs> like it just at the time, like it just didn't, it just didn't really cross my radar. So that honest to God is, is the only real mistake. But what I would say though, 
is that as a mistake, it was a, it, it feels now like a pretty big one because you look at the compound interest that you're getting on a stocks and shares ISA. And don't by do the way, I use yourself, man. Don't do it. To well, yourself. I know, right? I, I know, and I, I try to avoid that where where possible. Yeah, I yeah. use. I'm really simple, right? So I I don't um I I don't pick the stocks myself. I use something called Wealth Simple, which is just super easy. Just direct debits in there every month like a really user-friendly app that I can see my graph and see what happens and blah, blah, blah. I don't check it that often anymore. When you first get it, you check it every day. Like, oh, I made a pound. Oh, I made 50. Oh, I made 100. Um, whereas you realize that actually that's all complete nonsense until you take it out. So it's not actually real until you take it out. So let's just ride these waves and see what happens. Um, but yeah, I just use that. It invests for me. I can pick my risk appetite which is largely based on when i might need the money out so when i was approaching house deposit i reduced my risk right down and then for the last three four months just had it in cash um just to make sure and stuff like that but they've they have uh and not that i'm on any commission from them by the way but they they've just got this service where you can just ring them and they'll just chat about the risk with you um and see what you want to do and stuff like that i, I mean it's just, honestly just it's so, it seems so simple. I'm, you know, I've seen the sort of stuff that you guys will cover on here being like super complex, but for anyone that is an F1, F2, if you can put two, 300, 400, 500 quid away into this ISA and just do it every month, this is not financial advice, by the way, but um, <laughs> if you can, things might happen that are good. <laughs> definitely i think spend like if you look we did a 10 top tips the other day um and i think spend less than you earn it sounds like flippantly simple but it does. actually to spend less than you earn actually requires quite a bit you got to get a budget you got to know yeah. what's going in what's going out and then once you've got that once you spent less than you earn you generate cash flow and what you do with that cash flow is as you say you can buy a house or you can invest it wisely and you're right we do do complex things on the podcast but we also do simple and we do have an equivalent for of wealthify uh, which is specific to doctors um so basically what you're talking about is robo advice yeah. where you pick you pick your risk and it's all done online. And it, the great thing about it is it's super low cost because, you know, you mentioned compound interest, which is the, the propensity of, of interest on interest to accumulate rapidly over time. Uh, but fees also compound, right? So yes. uh, it's super low cost. So um, I won't drop the Wealthify link in there, but I might drop the link to uh, the Medics Money uh, version, which is specific for doctors, super low cost, less than 1%. And it, you just do it online. And I think, yeah, just get started is a great tip. Um, awesome. Thank you so much for sharing that right let's finish up on something which makes me feel like i mean i joined linkedin last year same for twitter i'm consistently behind the curve on these kind of tech <laughs> things but i'm on clubhouse right because you invited yeah. me um so for those <laughs> for those people like me who haven't heard of clubhouse until about last week talk to us about clubhouse because i'm intrigued by it so i yeah i mean i'm not an expert on it i've, I've been around i've been on it for well, since january so not not that long so a couple of months um it's an audio only app where there are rooms organized basically like a list of always ongoing webinars that you can just drop into. So there's always a few people in inverted commas up on stage speaking and a load of people in the audience listening. You can join there and set up a room yourself. You can set up a club on there, which is loads of people with the same interests and you can set up rooms between you and you get pinged whenever something's going on. But I suppose the best way of describing it, yeah, it's just a, a list there of just webinars that are constantly on about all sorts. So I'm in a couple about like tennis where people will talk about like 
how much does it suck when you're 15 40 down in a must win game and you know second set like all that sort of stuff and like how to be a club tennis player and improve your backhand like all that sort of stuff but similarly loads of health techs on there like loads and loads and loads of health tech it seems very popular in the vc community in the tech startup community entrepreneurship things like that so there's loads and loads and loads of those conversations going on all the time and you can just you can just dip in. I've got a few invites if anybody wants one. You can always ping me on LinkedIn. If I've got any invites, I can send you one. Um, similarly, anyone that's been on there for more than five minutes has probably got a few invites to give you. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a, it's cool. It's interesting. Um, there's there's talk that will this just become a feature of other platforms? And I believe Twitter's already done it with something called Spaces, I think. So much like Snapchat just became stories and then Instagram copied them and Twitter copied them and, and you know, it might just become a feature, but I think there's probably always going to be a place I've asked. They've got a huge amount of people on there, like over 10 million, I think now on there. Uh, so yeah, interesting platform, loads of interesting conversations going on. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. It's a, uh, it's interesting, you know, um, technology that, uh, could, could, could help out doctors in the future. Awesome. James, thank you so much, uh, for your time this morning. I know you've got to go get your beauty sleep cause your dog has kept you up at night <laughs> or, uh, something like that. Um, but thank you so much for your time. Um, you mentioned how to get hold of you and, um, I love how accessible you are. Um, I'm thinking LinkedIn, your LinkedIn is yeah, LinkedIn's the easiest place to find me. So, uh, James Somaru, so S O M A U R O O. Yeah, just uh, just send me a message on on there, add me or whatever, like all good. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. It was super interesting to chat through this and uh, take care. Good luck with the uh, puppy. Thanks for having me on, sir. Take care.